Welcome to the Pandora Podcast, where fellowship-trained pain specialists Dr. Melissa Cady and Dr. Kevin Cucaro reveal the secrets of pain care, including harmful practices, healthy tips, and the hope found through the science of pain. Please note, this podcast is for entertainment purposes only and does not constitute a physician-patient relationship. Please discuss your medical issues with your personal health professional. For more information and free resources, visit Pandora.com. Now on to the show. Well, welcome back to the Pandora podcast. I'm Dr. Melissa Cady, joined by Dr. Kevin Kakaro, as we say, Dr. Kevin. And we are going to start off today's talk about something I just started mentioning to Dr. Kevin that I really want to do for pain professionals, especially pain medicine physicians out there. But there's some real dilemmas and struggles, um, despite the fact that a lot of pain medicine physicians have more time and maybe could learn about different ways of looking at pain. Um, and especially because they can't do or deliver what they've been traditionally trained to do, which is injections, spinal cord stimulator implantations or trials or pain pump placements or whatever it is, or giving opioids, um, you know, that, that drives most of the business and the infrastructure to keep the business alive is to do things to patients and make money from those things that they do to patients, uh, which does not usually lend itself to a lot of time to spend with patients to discuss pain science, or at least embed the information of pain science into their story and what they're going through. Um, I guess my first thought is, or maybe I'll ask you, Dr. Kevin, directly is, what is the, the current challenges with maybe if I had a platform online in a Facebook group to share this with them, what do you think the struggles or, or hurdles are for that? Um, okay, just a, a couple of clarifications, mm -hmm. just because um, who knows when people are going to be watching this video. Right. We're in the middle of the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, at this moment in time, which is early April, most people are at stay at home. So all quote unquote, non-essential sort of health and healthcare has sort of come to a halt. And we talked about that earlier, how it's remarkable an entire system. The whole economic foundation for the US healthcare system is designed on doing stuff that people don't really need to them because <laughs> you're, you're seeing that. And so what you were referring to in the statement was with pain doctors having more time, and the reason is, is those are what we would call non-essential services. So all these injections and things outside of the data and evidence, which we talked about previously, people aren't doing them because it's a risk. It's a, it's a, it's a certified health risk at this point in time. So you're, you're, you know, there's this time when you have a bunch of people who are not doing these busy, busy poke practices or injection practices, or anybody who's not doing a very busy practice because you can't see patients in your clinic. So here's a perfect opportunity to learn. Mm -hmm. So I just want to put that out there. Clarification, by the way. Well, and I and only did that is because I. <laughs> no, like, it's good. You know, who knows? Is the internet? Someone will be watching this years later, and there's going to be some important stuff that we're going to talk about that is going to be relevant outside of this pandemic. Right. And so we are having this discussion. You know, how do we kind of introduce this stuff? Because if you're looking at at healthcare transformation and you want to transform the system, it can't just be me and it can't be just you and it can't be the three, four, five, six, even 10 or 15 other people that we know, mm -hmm. right? To have widespread change, you need to have concepts adopted of, of good practice that are rooted in the science rather than myth so that the, you know, and then there needs to be some really exponential growth so that you can actually transform a system of healthcare. Mm -hmm. 
And um, good on you because you were thinking that way. <laughs> and, and here I am. Um, I think it's really, really hard. And I think it's really, really hard. Even, even in the scenario where you have practices with no income coming in, to get them to adopt these principles and practices and change the model of how they're delivering care and talking pain and working with their patients and going from this entrapment, you know, passive modality model where it's all due to them, due to them, not about what they can do themselves, disempowering the patient, doing all this stuff. Um, the, the, the problem with even trying to educate in this scenario is that there's nothing to replace that income stream with. Meaning, sure, you can go out and say, well, you can do telemedicine, but if you look at the reimbursement rates for telemedicine, they are not even close to what you would get for saving an epidural steroid injection. And it is so much easier to walk into a room or even, I mean, the horrible way to do it is people then line up a bunch of telehealth visits and then start talking to them and then start pushing out and say, well, when, we have our, when, when the stay-at-home order goes away, we're going to have our schedules full. We'll make sure that you're in the front of the line for this procedure, or this procedure, or this procedure, right? Um, and, and this kind of, it just comes back to kind of this human nature thing where if you tell people not to do, first of all, if, if you say don't do this, but you don't replace this with something else, the likelihood that someone's going to follow through with that is, is low. Because in the default in the stress scenario, you're going to do whatever the course of action is that you're used to doing. That's just the way the brain kind of works under stress. Yeah. You makes it even worse, though, if I have an incentive to do this that you're telling me not to now do, and I haven't replaced it with something else. Right. So, um, you know, the, the, the problem with the pain world is that the incentives to practice good care and to empower your patients are not there. Right. There, there, there's simply no, and this is going to sound so awful, folks, but it's like the God honest truth. There's no incentive. In fact, you're disincentivized to do the right thing for your patients. Uh, you're disincentivized to learn up-to-date pain science. You're because it's not aligned with, with the typical healthcare environment. So um, that's a very, very long way to say is here's this perfect opportunity when people who may have been uh, so busy working and having such a busy practice and throwing, you know, putting the, as many people through, through these, these, uh, these assembly lines and those assembly lines have stopped and there's a chance for them to learn, but the likelihood of that actually happening is very, very low. Yeah. Well, and I, I think that there's a, you know, th this idea of, of even if, that one pain physician that normally was doing in injections and, and giving opioids, if they happen to be open enough to listen to, say, a webinar we put together regarding how you can help patients transform their pain via telemedicine, if they were open to that, they would have to struggle with how to deliver that in a conversation with a patient who's had a completely different belief system who's been basically, you're trying to change a belief system in a physician who then has to try to change a belief system that they're struggling with, with their own patients and their patients believe that they need something done to them. And so I don't feel like there's a lot of people willing to endure that kind of challenge. And I feel like there has to be a certain level of, I don't know if you want to call it, um, persistence, stubbornness, a, a level of moral or ethical standards that you just can't 
live in any different in any other way than what seems like the right way. Um, granted, those physicians out there probably believe that everything that they're doing is ethically and morally sound because that's the basis of their training and how their belief system is. But when you try to shift your belief system into something else, um, it really, you and I have both gone through it and had an enormous, there's an, an enormous amount of struggle, um, anxiety, and pain that goes with shifting a belief system that takes away the money that would provide for your family. Um, so I, I think it's not just on the level of the physician or the clinician, it's also when they redirect it to the patient. Well, and that becomes, uh, that's a challenging interaction as well, right? I mean, particularly if it's somebody you've been seeing for a significant amount of time and you've done a bunch of stuff too, because there's a huge mea culpa that comes along with that. Because yeah. they're going to say, well, why did you do this to me? Yeah. Um, and, you know, and granted, they all don't, they, they, not everybody will say that, but you have to be prepared for that conversation. Yeah. And, and the way that I've explained it to um, people I've worked with, like the clinicians, because they work mostly with clinicians, is if, if you have, a, if you're coming from a place of, of, if it's a true mea culpa and your and your your change is for the right reasons, people have a tendency to understand a little bit more. Uh, and if you have a connection with the with the patient, meaning that they're someone that you've enjoyed working with, and you have that therapeutic, or at least have that 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 relationship, um, there it's it's scary to do the first couple of times, but as you get better at it, it becomes less scary, and it's usually not as scary as we make it out to be. Yeah. Can you um, define mea culpa? Mea, mea culpa is like a, a fault, my fault, yeah. right? And actually, if I what I should do is pull up the actual Latin for mea culpa. Let me do that just so I make sure I don't. <laughs> we're getting but, we're getting a a little bit of a, a a lesson here on words. Yeah. So the you know an acknowledgement of one's fault or error. The only reason I want to do that is because I'm language is a big deal to me, and I always want to make yeah. sure. That. So the Latin itself is through my fault, which I think fits absolutely perfectly. Um, cause through my fault, I've done this to you. So you're, it's a full acknowledgement of your responsibility in this interaction. And when you're looking particularly in healthcare and specifically in a pain world, um, there's a lot of mea culpas that we're doing because most of what is out there. So you, cause you're talking about that. We not only have to shift the beliefs of the practitioner, but then we have to work on someone who, who, um, a, a person who's been living in pain for sometimes decades or years, we have to start working with their belief system, but their, that person's belief system was significantly influenced by us and our actions. Yeah. And, um, yeah, and, and, you know, that's a whole different conversation. We, that's a, that's a conversation we should be having because of what we've done in this world with this, with the pandemic, as you call it, I, I don't see us us being the pain physicians per se on a level and scale of the mea culpas that we should be doing um, because we complain about this, this problem and this whole idea with the opioid epidemic, which is the symptom of the pain epidemic. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and it's, it kind of makes me, I'm going to go off on a little tangent here, but it makes me angry because you'll see the pain specialists, oh, the opioids, blah, 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 blah. We did that. Yeah. We did that. Um, and, and yeah, pharma was involved in it, but we're the ones who said the words, we're the ones who told people lies. We're the ones who listened to this stuff. Um, you know, cause we originally, I, I'm sure it was when you were in being trained, when I was in training, we were telling people that if you had chronic pain, persistent pain, 
the risks of addictions were low. You were actually less likely to get addicted to opioids uh, than if you actually didn't have persistent pain. And that's completely false. It was based on no data and host all other reasons. But we, we've done, you know, the reason that people are seeking all these injections is because we're offering them, giving them, and, and promoting them. The reason that we have so many back surgeries in the United States is because we're offering, we're doing, and we're pushing people to them. Um, called marketing and sales marketing marketing and sales so we have a lot of, we have a lot of mea culpas and that's a, and to pull it back to the beginning of this i don't know if we're the the profession who's the right one to do who's going to be the ones that change to be honest i um i i am not convinced uh that pain specialists pain this pain the specialty of pain medicine first of all i don't think it necessarily needs to exist and number two, I don't think we're the ones that are going to cause or create change. Yeah, that's it's kind of a harsh reality that I don't <laughs> I don't think a lot of our, um, you know, pain trained colleagues. Um, I don't think they really want to hear that that at all. I I wanted to make a comment that it was it's kind of ironic. Last night I was watching a, a TV show that had to do with a lot of. Um, mafia related drugs and and how you know this whole um there was a bad batch it affected them and people died and you know i made a comment to my husband and i was like you know the whole reason when i finished my pain fellowship i literally had two days after my training within six months of my training being done that i had written prescriptions at a clinic i was helping out at and I just got sick inside just thinking that I'm putting this stuff out there and I don't know how it's going to affect people. And I told my husband last night, I was like, that's the biggest reason I couldn't go forward is that I just felt like I was contributing to something I had no control over and that it was a slippery slope. And, um, and I'm not, I mean, heck I do anesthesia part-time. I'll get back to it eventually um, whenever I can do elective cases again. Um, but I don't have a problem using opioids in the right way where I have control over that and it's not going to be abused or, um, you know, even mindful of people who had addictive pasts and, and try to modify my anesthesia plan. You know, those, those things I, I really take into account. Um, but for this chronic persistent pain issue, I just didn't have, I, I couldn't even stomach it to, to be able to do something like that because I felt like it was, um, going to become what, you know, like I, I always say, and you mentioned is the pandemic. And I, I feel like we did contribute to that and I didn't want to contribute to that. And when you have hundreds of thousands of physicians doing that, um, it, it doesn't surprise me. It, it's like a lot of us saw this coming, you know, without, without the numbers starting to hit, without the public knowing, we knew somewhere in deep in our being that that we were putting stuff out there. And if we we're really honest with ourselves, it was going to cause a big, massive problem. Well, and I, the, the only thing I would add with that, well, a couple of different things I would add with that is if the, if you could track the negative outcomes to all the procedures that we were doing and they were as, as evident as, as extreme mm -hmm. and they were being picked up by people in the ER and law enforcement, which is the entire reason this, the so-called, you know, the opioid epidemic was even called out. We didn't call it out. Right. It was called out because of law enforcement going, who are all these people and why are they coming in? And then, and then the emergency department when they're having all these people with overdose 
an yeah. issue. So it wasn't even the pain specialist calling the stuff out. Yeah. Um, but if we could track back the outcomes that have happened with our other therapies with relatively no or low or, neg or negative out, uh, evidence associated with them, all the procedures, I think you would, we, we, we would have a, a whole different conversation along that. Because if you actually look at the data, the data for opioids for persistent pain is awful. Mm-hmm. but it's actually a greater body and probably better than the data we have on interventional procedures and surgery, which is absolutely shocking. I mean, right. Right, that. Um, yeah, well, can I say a point to that? Yeah, yeah. Um, within my book, I had one chapter, only one chapter talking about opioids. I had looked at some of the reviews on, on um, Amazon and there was a couple, one person in particular was just, or a couple people felt like I was kept hammering at opioids and it, and I, and I kept thinking about, I was like, how is it that people are thinking when I have one chapter on it and the whole book, it might, re, you know, relate or connect to opioids, but how is it they felt like I was overemphasizing it? But I realized, you know, they, the community at large, society at large has been inundated with all this opioid and overdoses and all that. But the whole definition of pandemic is that it's overutilization of opioids, injections, and surgeries. But the data, like you said, it's, it's not overtly being, you know, told um, to all the people in society. They don't, they don't have a conceptualization of the impact. And what we said earlier to tie it into it is we're creating a belief that they need these things. But if you look at graphs of looking at over five to 10 years of the number of opioids, number of admissions for overdoses, the injection rates, the epidural use, the surgicals, um, surgical rates, even looking at fusions for back pain. Um, all of those are rising, but there's no concomitant decrease in pain rates at all. In fact, it's quite the opposite. The pain's getting worse despite the overutilization of all those things. And what people don't see is the injection complications the surgical complications, deaths um, that come from some of these things. So I just wanted to reemphasize that because I, I wholeheartedly agree that people don't recognize it. It goes way beyond opioids. Well, and, and, and that comes in the mea culpa though too, is because right. even with all this attention, like I've gotten a reputation that I'm anti-opioid. Yeah. And, um, and, and I'm, people have written some really nasty things about me because of some of the stuff on it, but I'm not anti-opioid and anti, I'm opioid for where it makes sense when you understand pain. And you already touched on this. It makes sense when you're in a, an area where you have a large peripheral nociceptive component, blah, 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 uh, which is to, you know, mostly perioperative or acute trauma or something like that. Um, it, it, it was, it's remarkable to me because we've all these task forces and even at the national level, so as this stuff was getting, the opioid was getting all, opioids were getting all this press, people in our specialty who were supposed to be sitting on these national task force were recommending crap. They're like, you know, we don't prescribe or we need to cut the prescription and you know how to do it in this way, blah, blah, blah. And you can use uh, interventional modalities as an adjunct. And, and it's like, you can't say that you're doing evidence, that you're supporting some sort of evidence-based document to target the, uh, the opioid epidemic and then insert crap in there that you have no evidence to, to, that it doesn't have any evidence to support it either. And so and the only reason 
you, you would do that, at least in my book, is because there's a personal gain, right? And we're talking about that belief system again, mm-hmm. um, which comes, and again, back to the male couple, which goes back to the original, you know, the original point of this conversation is, if you're going to change the system, trying to change uh, with a, a group of people who have the highest invested in the current model, uh, in investment meaning really the highest financial gain from it, because that's, you know, when you're financially incentivized to do stuff, the data says you will more likely do it. Uh, and so the, the more that you have invested in a current paradigm that's supported by financial incentives, the less likely you are to change. Even in an opportunity that we have right now where people's clinics are shut down. So um, the question then becomes is who should we be targeting? <laughs> right? right. Who, who should we be targeting with this? Right. Um, well, I mean, the, the pay structure has to change in order for, if, you know, as you said, people could question the need for pain medicine, physicians like ourselves, um, at least the numbers that we have out there is way beyond what we need, especially when I hear people are doing anywhere from 20 to 50 injections a day. That's just absurd. Um, If there's a payment restructuring on, if people actually got paid equally to someone who did an epidural injection, which won't happen, I sincerely doubt, um, unless someone has a cash practice that people are valuing that person in particular and has been sold or word of mouth or whatnot. Um, but if you can talk to a patient and spend the time with them and review things, reassure them, educate them, support them, give them skills and things that they can do to help themselves, you know, maneuvering through their pain journey. Um, if you got paid the same as someone doing epidural, um, you know, then it might, it might shift things or you just don't pay for it. You block any reimbursement for doing those things um that that's the only way i see somebody i mean it's probably going to dissolve practices but you can see a lot of fighting for those reimbursements within small communities i see that they're trying to fight in a political way to make sure that they get reimbursed for the things that really aren't supported well in the evidence well that's that's universal the medicine is universal sure but definitely within the pain physicians as well the pain physicians is well pain and spine are the worst yeah they're trying to hold on (laughs) the the absolute worst and then and and but because they have so much money they're also an extraordinarily potent lobby if you look at the spine surgery lobby who makes even more than the interventional pain specialist um they're the irony (laughs) it, it is ridiculous what they're doing like from you know from the from the political lobbying so, but then you're, okay, let's go back to, to how do you change the system? And I always kind of like to distinguish what I call the circles of control. There's a circle you control, which is your, your thoughts, your behaviors, your actions. And there's an external circle, which you don't have control over. And so we always want to, and granted, I've bashed my head against this wall for years now, but you want to change the system, right? right? You're like, how? I want to change how this stuff is getting paid. And that even... <laughs> that is insane. Like even you start like even trying to do that and having done this at the state level or tried to do that at the state level, you get all these hype, you know, because these people and their lawyers come in and, and basically first they present garbage evidence and then they don't, then they, they, then they, I mean, there's their garbage evidence and they refute that. And then they, um, 
then they say, well, you're, you are biased. You as, as whoever is the one on these committees that are looking at the payment methodologies. So then they started attacking people for saying that they're biased without any, and you can't question them. It's like, well, who's paying you? And who, how do you get paid? You, oh, you get paid to do all this stuff and you're calling us biased? And then the third thing that they do, if that doesn't work, is they start looking at the actual, um, the, the, the procedure and whether every I was dotted or, or T was crossed. Um, and then they threaten lit litigation through that. So, I mean, it, from, from a system standpoint, the roadblocks there are absolutely profound. Mm -hmm. So should we stop? No, you know, if, if you're crazy and you want to hurt yourself, you know, we do it. Um, <laughs> but what do we do actually have control over then is we have control over what we do, what you do, what I do, what our, you know, colleagues that are, you know, at least cognizant and aware of the science and trying to align with that practice. Um, but then we need to look for the audiences that have something to gain. Yeah. Right. And, um, and we'd start off camera here, say like physical therapy. So not all physical therapy has some, some advantages because they have some of the best, some, some fantastic educators and some of the, the best researchers and anybody who's ever seen me talk in any major time is knows that people like Lorimer Mosley are like, he's like one of my heroes. Like he's a, he's a unbelievable he's research scientist. He's a, he's a, a phenomenal educator. He's humble. Um, you know, I, I have more interaction with him. So I, I'm not, I know David Butler is another good one, but they have these people that are just like in the pain world at the top of the peak. Now, in the, in the physician world, nobody listens to them because they don't have an MD or a DO or whatever after the name. Which is a shame. Which is a shame. I mean, these guys know way more than 99.999% of pain specialists out there. They know more pain about them. On the flip side, though, I also say because they don't have the MD or DO after the name, they're not a non-physician, sometimes they, they don't understand what's happening in the physician world, so they don't push as hard as they should because they're just, I, I think they give them a way bigger benefit of the doubt than they should be giving them a benefit of the doubt. Yeah. But anyway, so PT's got all these people, but even in PT, there's a war about, because um, you have to fight against the group of people who, who are in the do, do camp and the, and the do camp is profitable. So we're talking trigger point injections. Uh, we're, we're talking manipulation, even other passive modalities like the, the, you know, ultrasound. I mean, there, there's people who will advocate against it, but it's so much easier to do something and it feels so cool. Oh, it's my magic hands. I mean, we're DOs. We know what it feels. Oh, mm -hmm. yeah, my magic hands are doing magical things. I feel so good, except when it doesn't work, and then it's the patient's fault. And um, so there, there's a war there. Now, the, the audience that, you know, so they, you know, some of them have something to grow, and then they, they kind of freak out because they think they're going to have to be solid psychologists or whatever. But there's an audience out there that I think has huge potential, and that would be behavioral health. Behavioral health being psychology, social work, uh, LMFTs, uh, 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 licensed marriage and family therapists, um, because they don't have a, it, it doesn't hurt them to provide good pain care. In fact, it becomes a gain because they're already seeing people who've been put through the ringer. Like after everything else has been said and done, it's like, well, go see your, your behavioral health or mental health specialist and they're going to tell you how to cope with this, right? Or, or as, as a psychologist friend of mine um, said, who had an interest in pain and then got driven away from pain and now is totally back into it, it you know, with, with his pain understanding and just have, you know, is in fire again. 
He's like, I don't know. I didn't know what to do when people were put through all this stuff, would have surgeries, injections, gone through PT a hundred times. And then they're telling me, they said, there's nothing else that's going to be done for your pain. Go to the psychologist uh, so that, because you need to get your, you, so they can help you with your depression. And he's like, I would look at these charts and see these people with what would have been done and how much pain they're in. And I'm like, well, how am I supposed to tell them not to be depressed or work with them on the depression? I would be depressed if this was me, right? right? right. And it's this model then that the pain somehow was fixed and then you have to work on the depression. Now that obviously changed when you understand pain and you can see how that complex interplay is and how depression is involved in the construction of pain. Now we can treat the depression and lo and behold, we can actually improve the pain. But um, they have, the, they have no disincentives to learning this other than years of, of being, of again, the, the typical biomechanical thinking about pain, that there's nothing they can do for the pain. They can only help the anxiety or the depression rather than I can help the anxiety, I can help the depression, I can help the PTSD, and through that help someone's pain. So if we can spread that message. Right. Yeah, uh, and then the importance of behavioral health overall. Like if the more we can start engaging behavioral health in the healthcare system so that we're not saying, you know, a five minute visit and then saying, well, you have high, you know, you're, you're, you're 20 pounds overweight and you have high blood pressure. Let's start on, on a blood pressure pill. Instead of you're saying we're pl- you're 20 pounds overweight, we have an opportunity here. Let me get engaged with behavioral health specialists so that we can start, you know, teaching you skills and we're going to coach you through this so that you can go out and you change your, your diet and exercise and get healthier that way. Because if you lose 10 pounds and we can hold it off, that has the effect of a blood pressure medication. If you do that, you'll never have to be on a blood pressure pill or we would hope not. And, but you need a behavioral health specialist there. So then if we, if we're targeting that group of people and we're giving them the pain skills in addition to the other skills that they already have, and we're entwining this stuff together. So it's no longer the specialty of pain, which is completely nonsense. Because if you're in healthcare, you're going to see somebody with pain. So everybody should be pain literate. Empower these group of people though, who have the, you know, the knowledge and skills about behavioral aspects and can provide that, that long-term kind of facilitated change. That's where we're going to see change. That's where we're going to see system transformation if we can get the incentives aligned. Yeah. A little little bit better there. Just a little teeny bit better there. Yeah. So the maybe, you know, the struggle with trying to get uh, pain clinicians themselves to learn how to help transform pain in their patients via telemedicine should be more like, here's a educational thing we can do to help your supportive staff who provides either some kind of behavioral medicine, um, you know, psychologists, social workers, whatnot, um, so that they can support the patients in your practice. And it will, it'll be um, accessible to you as well. So you know, maybe a few people would learn <laughs> a few and, things. And, and people are doing that. There, there is yeah. some, some evidence of that out there. Um, yeah. the, the, the problem I have with that is it, you get these two kind of tracks of care. Uh-huh. And the other part about it is it causes a, uh, an incongruent message in the same clinic. Yes. And it's really, really hard for those, for those clinicians, those, those pain literate clinicians who are working in a pain illiterate environment. Which is what we dealt with when we had we dealt with, <laughs> but you're trying to, you're, you know, you're, and you don't want to badmouth your colleagues or anything. No, it's hard. So it, 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 it is, it's, ex- it's really, really, really difficult to do. But what we've kind of done locally here with some of the, the people I work with and, and their programs, they've actually stopped accepting 
referrals, it, they're like, and they've talked to the primary care docs and then say, if you're going to send them to the pain clinic, don't send them to our program. Wow. And because the reason is it's, it's going to waste their time. And it's going to waste our time because they're going to hear completely different messages from so these true. different environments. And what we know is the message is extraordinarily important. So, you know, and they, they'll say, well, you know, let them do whatever, <laughs> which always makes me feel horrible because these people <laughs> are getting sent off and having bad stuff done to them. Um, but they're like, you know, they can come back later. Um, my preference would be as if we can shift everybody down that route, you know, let's just get rid of the pain clinic. That's really an injection clinic and filter them into the programs first, you know, and then as, and then the people who are really struggling in those that need a little bit more, maybe one-on-one, then we build out the resources there. Um, but so yeah. maybe pain medicine clinics should be called no susceptive uh, medicine, no well, susception would, medicine clinics. <laughs> well, that would be your regional service, right? Yeah. So that's the, so you don't, and, and so you, you don't need a pain clinic is just an injection clinic. So I, I, to me, honestly, if it's, a, if it's a persistent pain phenomenon, then the pain clinic should be staffed by behavioral health specialists, period. Mm-hmm. Because they have the skill set for it. Maybe you need a movement specialist so that you can make them feel comfortable and they're not and decrease the fear associated with movement again. No, for the injections, because then now people say oh, you're anti-injection, Doctor Huharo. I'm not anti-injection either. I, I, I I'm a, I'm an anesthesiologist by training. I love doing yeah. injections, but you got to do them for the right reasons. Right. And so that becomes perioperative care or in an acute care setting where. Now you're doing rib blocks, blocks for people who have rib fractures and maybe you're trying to get them off the vent. Maybe you're doing, um, it's an uh, acute pain service, it's an acute pain service, or, or we, that would be your acute nociceptive service. Mm-hmm. Even those people though should be pain literate that because oh. I, and, and you know, I, I, I tell people now it's cause they, people are like, well, you want to shift it out. Well, the acute and the chronic, and we know that for the chronic, we're not going to write opioids and blah, 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 you know, but the acute pain is easy. It's just nonsense. The fact of the matter is, if you understand pain, if someone has all that, what I would call heat and oxygen, so lots of anxiety, depression, past trauma, early life stressors, and they break their leg, yes, you may want to do a regional technique, but you're going to want to address those other issues as well. How can I help this person feel safe? How can I smooth out their expectations of what's occurring with them? How can I prep them to have a successful recovery? How can I follow with them and make sure that they know that they're, that someone is with them, that they're not being abandoned or thrown out after a single visit. So how can we care for that therapeutic encounter through it with them? And the only way you do that though, is if you actually understand pain and you realize it isn't about a simple block the pain pus deal, but say, Hey, we're going to block that no susceptive input, but I have someone who's scared. Maybe they don't know. They've never been in a hospital system before. Maybe they had a bad experience in the hospital before. And, and it, it, it changes the way you practice. And then we would actually see, I hope we would actually see, you know, we'd, we'd see this change downstream because now if you're addressing that acute issue off the bat in a pain literate manner, we can interrupt that, that kind of cascade that kind of presents to persistent phenomena where now people are living in pain for decades and decades and decades. If we can shorten that, that'd be fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. yeah no, there's, you know, the, the whole idea of, of trying to get, you know, I know we started out with how can we, or what are the challenges with trying to educate our pain colleagues on better ways of, you know, educating their own patients on how to transform their pain. Um, 
but I think we've shifted to recognizing that there are a lot of components and issues at hand. And um, sometimes uh, for us, it's even, it's difficult dealing with our own colleagues. It's not just some other person that's trying to educate, but our own, like for ourselves, who've been trained at the same level, trying to get them to change their mind is so incredibly difficult. And you and I have been doing this for years and we feel like it's it's like going uphill on ice and it's just it you can't really make the impact that you really want to make but um i i do think as you said that we're we're shifting to recognizing that we have to reach out to people that it makes the most sense and change the the payment structure on what people are being rewarded for doing um so that the people that end user the patient actually benefits the most so um any last thoughts on, on these challenges of trying to educate pain clinicians or changing the pain system? I mean, you've hit a lot of stuff, but. Uh, I think the last thoughts is um, we, we need a body of people who are willing to, spe- to stand up to the highly invested side, right? Uh, because the, the, the people are, are it, it is, it's a very difficult and challenging process. But when you are, again, changing those financial incentives, the amount of, um, I, don't, I don't know what the word, word that you, what, what you the, 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 the people against you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what? We need more and more people who are willing to, spend, to stand up to that lobbying body. Mm-hmm. And I do think that comes actually from confidence in understanding pain because the people right now who are trying to change those systems, almost none of them come from a pain background meaning they don't know what we know so they don't actually know the details about how these procedures are done and so when you don't understand it there's this mysticism and you're like oh maybe they're actually doing something even though the data says nothing maybe even then they say that the data doesn't say anything but i know just through my personal anecdotal practice that these injections work which is not how you're supposed to practice medicine um they're they're usually not aggressive enough uh, and there needs to be more enough people because, the, because frankly, I don't have the strength to do it. Like the few times I've been up there by myself. Um, it's so hard. It, it is. It's, it's unbelievably, you say a couple of things and then you just get overwhelmed because you're the lone guy or, lone, yeah. or a lone woman standing up there. So we need, we need a cadre of people that are actually willing to stand up for what the data and evidence says. Because when we start working on those, those, those financial incentives, and it's going to happen because not only we may have accelerated that process now with COVID, with, mm-hmm. with, the, with the way these financial systems or these healthcare systems are falling apart as it is. Um, but we need, we need to have physicians and other healthcare providers who are willing to say the right things for the right reasons uh, to change those financial incentives. Um, yes. It's hard. Yeah. So anyone listening, if you're a clinician that wants to rally with some people like us or you're a patient or somebody that is you know seeking pain care that wants you know has found somebody that thinks more in line with how we think or not just think but stand by the pain science and have changed our practice because of uh, what we see to be you know more effective for people who have pain Um, you can always share what we're doing on this uh, podcast and and the YouTube channel or podcast um, in whichever venue you're listening to it, um, but I think that we're kind of spread out, and so it's going to take us reaching out and connecting. But thank God for the internet. 
That's right. <laughs> because when it's just you and you by yourself, you think you're going absolutely nuts. So yes, uh, you're not nuts. The world is nuts. And the internet yeah. is here and we can connect to everybody. So. <laughs> anyway. That's right. Ugh. Are we done now? Is this? I think so. I think I think people have heard enough on this topic. <laughs> I think so. But I, and I, I just want to emphasize though, this is super important. Mm -hmm. And and the problem is there's so much screaming and there's so much yelling on all sides and there's a lot of fear on all sides and there's a lot of passion on all sides. So it becomes very very difficult to have like a useful conversation. And I don't want anybody. The ultimate goal, particularly what we're talking about here, is we want to help people get better because we know it's possible. So even the people who don't think it's possible for them, who have been put through the ringer, who've been told all this stuff, I, I mean, there, we have such great examples now of people who, I mean, my, my favorite is, is Mo, who's a, a local woman here who's had pain for over 60 plus years and now is living the, she calls it her, her perfect, you know, the, the a mag, magical life, right? So her pain started when she was 14. Um, it's possible. It's, it's, and so we're not advocating, we're not trying to take away therapies. We're not trying to take away things. Um, what we're trying to do is, is align everything so that people can get the care that they need so they can get the solutions and outcomes that they want, which I am assuming is get back to your families, doing the things that you enjoy, you know, living a full life again, rather than being kind of trapped in this, trapped in pain and being told that the only thing that you can do is now manage it. Um, yeah. so, you know, that's, so you know, people get mad and they get upset with some of the stuff that we may be talking about, but we're not trying to hurt anybody. We're actually trying to help people help themselves to get well, cause it's possible. Yeah. And just a, just a clarification, Mo is someone who is a patient of somebody else that has publicly acknowledged and shared her story on multiple occasions. So this is not an infringement on patient Clock. No, I've got a recording with her at Straight Shot Health. So if you want, yeah. I have a whole podcast. I watched it. <laughs> and she won't stop. She's blah, 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 blah. Maybe she's, we should throw a link on that uh, for the, this podcast. She's fantastic. I just love her to death. That's awesome. Anyway. So enthusiastic. Yeah. Well, I guess that's the end of this particular one. And uh, for everybody out there, thank you for tuning in to the Pain Door Podcast. Uh, we appreciate your support. And again, uh, we're gonna we we can change this. We can we can change things. We can help people get well. If you're interested in contacting either Dr. Katie or I, we should have some contact information on the links here. Uh, and until next time, stay well. Bye bye. Thank you for joining us today on the Pain Door Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please let us know through a five star rating on iTunes or your current podcast listening service. And be sure to check out the information and resources available at Pandora.com.